Well, this morning, it's my great privilege to welcome back into this pulpit, Chad Scruggs. Uh, Chad came to Dallas many years ago to serve as the, uni- the RUF, Reform University Fellowship Campus Pastor at SMU. It wasn't long after he arrived there that the two of us began to spend time together. And one of the things I admired so much about Chad was the great questions he would ask and the way in which he would listen, which is clearly reflected in the way he prepares to preach. Early on, I asked him if he ever senses the Lord might be calling him away from that ministry into the life of the church, particularly this church that I would love to know, and I would love to see how the Lord might allow us to serve side by side in this particular expression of Christ. And God blessed that. And Chad came on staff here, serving as an associate pastor for a number of years, before God then called him to where he now is in Nashville serving as the lead pastor at Covenant. Um, Chad's a dear friend of this church, but many of you don't know him. You have joined in the last five years or so. So you'll be delighted as he unfolds the word of God for us and as the spirit feeds our soul. Chad, brother, welcome back. We love you and are so grateful for who you are in Christ. Well, it's important that you keep your expectations low this morning. I think let's start there. Uh, it's great to be back. The first thing I wanted to say was I love what you've done with the place since I've been gone. It looks better. Uh, I saw the renderings. It doesn't compare to the real thing. So um, someone asked us uh, this weekend, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do it. So um, what we missed about Dallas and, um, you know, a lot of things to choose from. Dallas is a great city, but my wife and I immediately said together, you. Um, we miss uh, the people. Uh, we miss y'all, our church family, and, you know, incredibly uh, formational in the life of my kids who are all sitting there this morning. Uh, their story in many ways began here. So thank y'all. For me to be back is a gift from you to me. I hope in some way it might be a gift to you as well, but it's very much a gift to our family. And so this is my chance to publicly say thank you. Um, The theme of this weekend, let's start now. The theme of this weekend, as you may know, maybe this is your first time to actually be a part of the weekend, is the grace of prayer. And as you can imagine, that is an incredibly large topic for which the Bible has much to say. We are going to focus this morning and tonight on just one passage in the book of Hebrews. First of all, because I love the passage and that should count for something. But beyond that, this passage in particular helps us to understand why prayer is a grace in the first place and how that grace, how the grace of prayer operates in our lives in two complementary ways. First of all, the grace to draw near to God. And then second, prayer is a grace for holding fast to him, especially in seasons of spiritual emptiness. So this morning, drawing near, tonight holding fast, You will notice those two verbs in our Hebrews reading. They recur often throughout the book of Hebrews, a lot of times together, and they really do form the heart of what this pastor wants most for his congregation. And just to prepare you as we read, I just want you to notice how much attention the author gives to Jesus. That is indicative of the entire letter. 
So it is this author's conviction and, of course, the conviction of the whole Bible that prayer is only a possibility. It is certainly only a grace because of who Jesus is. And let me maybe put it to you a little more strongly this morning. Um, There is no how-to that will fix your prayer life. Uh, There is instead an I am. And what you get in the gospel is always centrally a person. So for every moment and every task and every circumstance, what the Bible is offering you is Jesus himself. He is the grace. And so it makes sense when this pastor wants his people to draw near and to hold fast, what he does is he presents and he represents Jesus to them. Let me speak just for a moment to some of our young disciples, our young Christians in the congregation. I know how hard it is to listen for 25 minutes. So here's a challenge for you. I want you to look for, as we read, what God's throne is called in the passage. Can you find that? What is God's throne called in the passage, and why is that important? If you're able now, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 5, 10. We're going to also introduce a little section in John that will help us at the end. The writer of Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now briefly from John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, then John chapter 13, verse 23. From his, that is Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for calling us into your presence. We thank you for the grace of your dear son 
into whose image you've promised to conform us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in our time gathered this morning that you would move us along in that process. Lord, help us to hear your word, the word of your son. Lord, that we might learn what it is to draw near to you in confidence for help in time of need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're, you know, just a little context this morning, because I don't know when the last time you read Hebrews was. So, um, we're getting dropped off in the middle of a letter, but, he, we, you know, we call Hebrews a letter. It's one of the letters in the New Testament. It actually probably wasn't a letter. It was likely actually a sermon that then became circulated as a letter, and we don't have any idea who wrote Hebrews. A lot of ink has been spilled, but no one really knows. We do know the circumstances. We think that this sermon was preached and then circulated to a small house church close to Rome, comprised mostly of Jewish converts who were second-generation Christians. And so for a time, they enjoyed relative prosperity and peace in terms of early Christianity. But by the time they get this letter, they are entering into a time of elevated persecution under Nero's regime. So what you need to know this morning is that they were experiencing increasing persecution. It was increasingly hard to be a Christian. And not only did your baptism mark you out as someone who belonged to the household of God, it also marked you out for fresh experiences of suffering. This letter was addressed to a people who were weary, who were fragile, who were scared, and many of whom, you'll notice if you read through the letter, were on the verge of calling it quits. And so in lieu of that, in that context, what refreshment specifically does their pastor offer them on this occasion? I want you to see two things from our passage this morning. First, as always happens, the pastor turns their attention to Jesus, but in such a way that he calls Jesus their great high priest. So he turns their attention first to their great high priest, and then second, to their great high privilege that flows from their priest, which is their nearness to God. So we're going to look at each of those in turn this morning. First, the great high priest. Look with me first at verse 14. It's where our passage begins. The writer says, since then we have a great high priest. If you wanted to summarize the whole of the book of Hebrews, that would be it. Since then we have a great high priest. The author wants you to know that you have a great high priest. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? We don't traffic in that language very much. A foreign idea for us perhaps, but certainly not for a Jewish audience. Having a high priest would have recalled for them their own approach to God in the Old Testament as they were to call, draw near to him in worship. And basically what we need to know this morning is that the high priest mediated, that is his ministry affected nearness to God. You couldn't come near to God just as you are. You couldn't draw near to him because of the reality of your sin and guilt you'd be immediately consumed by judgment. So what God did is in the Old Testament, he graciously appointed priests, and especially the high priest, to offer sacrifices that would deal with sin. But because the high priest himself was a sinner, and because those sacrifices, if you read in the letter, were animal sacrifices in themselves insufficient to deal with the depth of human sin— Worshippers could only in the Old Testament approach God 
by nearness degrees. So for much of Israel, if you were a part of Israel, the closest you could ever get was basically to be on site at the temple. You could get in the outer court of the temple, one of the outer courts. If you were a priest, you could get nearer. You could get and serve at times all the way to the altar. But if you know the story, you know that it was only the high priest and only one time a year that could peel back the sanctuary curtain, the Holy of Holies, and go in in terror. If you know how it goes, he had a rope tied to his ankle so that if he died in the presence of God and didn't do things right, they would pull him out. And that was your ministry. The Holy of Holies is where the presence of God dwelled on earth and nearness to God for Israel was more true than any other people on earth at that time. And yet it was still incredibly limited. And so what does all that have to do with Jesus? When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is your high priest, he is saying this, your nearness to God, your relationship with God, is always dependent on the righteousness of Jesus and the quality of the sacrifice he offers on your behalf, which is nothing less than his own life. That is to say, the obedience of Jesus for you and the suffering of Jesus for you form the heart of Jesus' priestly ministry to God on your behalf. And you say, what does that get me? Well, verse 16 read it. Let us then with confidence, not with terror, not with shame, not with insecurity, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. The imagery there is that the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, has now been opened If you know the story of the Gospels and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all talk about the fact that the the temple um, curtain, when Jesus died and says, it is finished, it is torn from bottom to top. And here's the reality. From heaven's perspective, you have access to the presence of God that was absolutely unimaginable for the most privileged saints in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is your high priest. And that alone. But not only is he your high priest, the writer says here that he is your great high priest. Your great high priest. So if we're reading, we should be asking the question, well, in what does the greatness of Jesus consist? Some of that is probably what you're thinking right now. Verse 15 tells us that he is without sin. I don't know, that's pretty great. Um, He has passed through the heavens as the exalted son of God. By the way, that's been a huge theme since the beginning of the letter. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he is superior to any angelic being, that the world that is still to come, the unimaginable world that is still to come has already been subjected to him. And the point there is that Jesus is absolutely unique in his strength and in his power and in his superiority as your high priest. And yet that is not at all the focus here in verse 15. In fact, it's just the opposite. Look there with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. You have to see this, that 
what the author is saying that makes Jesus so great is not only the ministry that he presents to God on your behalf, it is also the ministry he presents from God to you. And the greatness of Jesus' ministry to you is found in his unique capacity to sympathize with you in your weakness. In fact, that word sympathize describes the bond that a mother shares with her children. We have mothers in this congregation. Do you feel bonded to your kids? Describe someone who does not only pity the suffering of others, but someone who enters into that suffering and makes that person's suffering their own. In other words, there is absolutely no disconnect between Jesus and you when it comes to any struggle that you face or any burden that you are currently carrying. And I would just encourage you at some point you would read the Gospels again with those eyes. When you read the Gospel, do you ever see Jesus lonely? Of course you do. You ever see in the Gospels where Jesus is betrayed by a friend? Absolutely. Ever experience rejection by those he loved? Of course. Did Jesus ever have vocational questions about the will of God for his life? Yes. Did he ever lose someone to death? Did he ever face death himself? Did he ever feel abandoned by God? Did he ever pray and feel like God wasn't there to answer him? The answer, of course, to all of those is yes. And the point the author is making here is not that Jesus can just go there with you experientially. It's that Jesus can do so uniquely on a level that no one else can. And that is not to say that other people cannot offer you sympathy and support in powerful ways. It's to say that they cannot approach the capacity of Jesus to do so with such authenticity and gentleness and mercy. And just let me remind you this morning that Hebrews 1.3 tells us this, that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And here's what that means. There is no God hiding behind Jesus who is different than him. It is tempting to think that maybe Jesus is the nice, patient, friendly version of God, the social one, whom the Father kind of sends out to be the face God of the Trinity, right? The real God behind him, however, the Father, is serious and harsh and critical. Absolutely not. What you have in Jesus, the author says, is the full revelation of God's character, and that is the same God you always, always, always approach in prayer. You have this great high priest, and Jesus is your assurance that God is for you in all the ways you need him most, and he is your assurance that God is with you in all the places you need him most. And so, of course, the call to draw near, the call to pray, if we were to be really simple this morning, we would just say this, the call to do so is just a call to walk with the God who has drawn near to you, to walk with him in fellowship. Let's look more closely at that just for a moment, our great high privilege. You'll notice here that one of the ways that that privilege is defined is as closeness. The author calls us to, of course, draw near to God because of this great high priest, Prayer really is, we're talking about prayer. Prayer is about exercising that, that privilege. So let me just say this, you gotta do it. I mean, God is near, but you gotta exercise the privilege that he's given you to draw near to him in prayer. 
And we draw near to God, to the throne of grace, to find mercy and help in our time of need. But I want to give you another way to think about it this morning. And this way comes to us from John's gospel, from John's own witness, who seems to have internalized closeness with God in an even more impressive way than we get it here in Hebrews. So look back with me at John chapter 1, verse 16. Again, all of this is your order of worship. And by the way, I can tell if you're looking or not. So I, it's not like we have a, I can see if you're doing it. So there's no barrier between us. Verse 16 says this, chapter 1, from his, that is Jesus' fullness, we have received what? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace is a phrase that means grace that is abounding. It just means this. If you peel back one layer of grace, guess what's beneath that? Another layer of grace. And if you peel back that layer, you get another layer of grace. It is grace all the way down without a bottom. And how does that play out in our nearness to God? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, that is, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You know, friends, we just saw, and it's important to keep that in mind, that one way to describe God's presence is in the language of power. Very appropriate way to talk about that. God is seated on a throne. He is in the place of ultimate authority. And prayer, with that imagery, is approaching God's throne, his authority, his sovereignty, his majesty, to find grace and help in time of need. The the image there is that you always have the high king's ear anytime you want it. Now let's add to that. In verse 18, we just read it, where does Jesus call home? Where does he belong? You'll notice that the, the way John describes it is not with the language of at the right hand of God, which is that throne language. It's entirely appropriate again. But what does your translation say? If you're looking at your bulletin, it says, at the Father's side. If you have a Bible open to that passage, you will no doubt notice a footnote telling you that phrase, at the Father's side, is idiomatic. It's an idiom that means in the bosom of the Father or in his embrace. And when that particular idiom is applied to a parent-child relationship, it almost always means in the parent's lap. It is this incredibly evocative, almost uncomfortable image that communicates intimacy and delight and love and security. And don't we talk this way too? If something is important to you, you might say you hold it where? Close to your heart. Maybe you've seen an old war movie where a soldier's on the battlefield and he takes out from his front pocket a picture of his wife and kids tearfully And he puts it back there, close to his heart. And what John is saying here is that Jesus eternally is close to the heart of the Father, even more than that, is held in his bosom, is affectionately in his lap. You say, what does it have to do with us? Well, in John chapter 17, there are just a few passages in the New Testament where we get high priestly language. One of the other ones is John 17. Jesus specifically prays there in his high priestly prayer that it is his desire for us to be with him where he is. Listen. In the love that the Father has had for him before the foundation of the world. And if you can now put those pieces together in the Gospel of John, it means this. 
that in body and soul, the great desire of Jesus as your high priest is to bring you as a son or a daughter into the lap of God. And that is your home. Now here's another layer. The only other time that phrase or that idiom is used in John's gospel is at the Last Supper. We just read it. So the Last Supper, right before Jesus goes to the cross, the night he was betrayed, he shares this intimate meal with his disciples, right? And in John's account, he washes the disciples' feet. And Jesus has just finished washing those feet. And John here is so interesting because do you know how John refers to him, himself in the gospel? If you read the gospel of John, John never calls himself by name, but he refers to himself. And he always refers to himself in this unbelievably presumptuous way. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. As if among all the other disciples, he was the special one. And so how does that play out? Well, in John 13, when all the disciples are sitting around the table and eating this intimate final family meal together, where is John in the scene? Look there again with me. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, in his lap, in his embrace. So that where John places himself on the eve of Jesus' great sacrifice, on the night when that sacrifice would be presented to his disciples through bread and wine, he places himself in the embrace of Jesus on his heart, in his lap. That is how John dominantly thinks of himself throughout his letter, throughout his gospel as a believer. It's why he exclaims in 1 John 3 how great the love the Father has given us that we should even be called children of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. What kind of person goes to sit in the lap of someone else? Not a professional. Not a well-put-together adult. It is only a child. And yet John seems to be telling us that this really is grown-up theology. To know that the grace of God, the throne of grace, is the same thing as saying the lap of the Father. You say, what does that mean for prayer? Well, God's prayers is just meant to be an expression of what God wants you to become in all of life. His child in his lap. And we tend to think this way. I mean, I, like we would never say this out loud, I don't think. We might. We tend to think that the goal of life is control. We gotta get things under control. By the way, how's that working out for you? And let me say this, when prayer goes bad, often a reason for the dysfunction is that we're trying to use prayer as currency to transact favor with God in order for us to actually exert more control over our own lives. And prayer then becomes transactional. When prayer goes well, it's the relationship that a child enjoys with their loving and present father. And that is why Jesus teaches us to say, to pray, our Father who art in heaven. If you are a Christian this morning, I want you to remember that your place is in the lap of God. That you have a great high priest who, whose merits you draw upon with confidence to go to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. Know this, dear one, God is yours, you are his, 
You have his throne and you have his lap. Let us draw near to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for the servants you've given us to write your word by your spirit. And we thank you that even now your spirit ministers to us to help us understand the things you've freely given us in your son. And Lord, when we are not confident that you have given us your spirit to testify in our spirit to say, Abba, Father, that you are ours, we are yours, and that we belong at your side in your embrace as your children, would you teach us to pray from that place? In Christ's name, amen.